You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, last week we began to take a look at the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism. We spent last week looking at the subject of total depravity or the inability of man. But uh, before we move ahead, I want to read to you again what Arminianism teaches regarding that subject of total depravity. I quote, Man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. Now, of course, as I said earlier, that's, that's the complete opposite of what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that man is unable to redeem himself whatsoever because man is so corrupted throughout completely by sin. Now, we're looking at the subject of unconditional election tonight, but before we launch into it, I want to read to you what Arminians believe regarding the subject of unconditional election. I quote, they say that God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by God's ability to see that they will of their own accord believe. So God looks down the halls of time, sees that that man is going to believe, and therefore he is going to call him out of darkness into his marvelous light. Unfortunately, like I said last week, <clears throat> Arminianism makes God subject to man. And that's the complete opposite of what Scripture teaches. Scripture nowhere ever suggests that God would ever be subject to man. So we're going to launch now into the subject of unconditional election and uh, follow the outline that uh, I started with, and that was uh, TULIP. TULIP, the acronym of TULIP. T stood for total depravity. And the U is for unconditional election. So the fall of the human race into the state of sin and misery is the basis and the foundation of the system that we know of redemption, which has been set forth in Scripture. We have been studying that. It's the subject of soteriology, salvation. And the first link in the redemption plan of God is the doctrine of election. <clears throat> Excuse me. Unconditional election. Now this term, unconditional, simply means with no conditions attached. No conditions whatsoever attached. Since the condition of the human race is as bad as the biblical doctrine of depravity indicates it is, then salvation must begin with God. If you remember last week when we looked at Romans chapter 3 and saw the description of man, Paul made it very clear that no man seeketh after God. Well, if that is the case, which it is, then it must, salvation must originate with God. It must be the work of the triune God to accomplish and apply by Him without any assistance on our part. God does not need our help to redeem us. 
We can't assist God one iota to help in our redemption. It has been fully, solely, and wholly of God. Now we know this to be true because Paul clearly emphasized that humanity is never going to seek God. Romans 3.11, there is none who seeks after God, period. By the way, when, the, when, when God's word says none, who, what does that mean? That means none. The Bible means what it says and says what it means. Therefore, if it's the case that there is none who seeks after God, then God is going to have to reach out and save us, is he not? He is. Before any of us sitting here tonight were ever born again, before we ever embrace Christ, God's the responsible agent who reached out and brought us to faith in His Son. And by the way, it was done through unconditional election. It was not based on anything we did. Now this first step of this reaching out is God's determination to do it, friends. The first step of our redemption is God's determination to do it which is what the word election refers to. That is God's sovereign choice outside of man. God's sovereign choice outside of man. Now I want to read something from you that was printed a long time ago. And my copy is just a mess. It's held together by this. I will say that it will be a part of my bibliography, this particular book. Jeff has got the new edition of it, one more author than, when, than mine, but the foreword <clears throat> has been written by a man named Roger Nicole, but the afterword was written by John MacArthur. So I'm kind of excited to take it home and kind of just breeze through it. But I highly recommend this copy, but I'm sure this is much better because it's, it's revised and expanded. You'd have a hard time finding my, my copy. I mean, it's, they're loose pages, so... Very old, but let me read this to you. By the way, <clears throat> the five points of Calvinism defined, defended, and documented by David N. Steele, Curtis C. Thompson, Thomas. Let me read you what these men said regarding unconditional election. I quote, The doctrine of election declares that God, before the foundation of the world, chose certain individuals from among the fallen members of Adam's race to be the objects of God's undeserved favor. These, and these alone, he purposed to save. God could have chosen to save all men, for he had the power and the authority to do so. Or he could have chosen to save none, for he was under no obligation to show mercy to any but he did neither. Instead, he chose to save some and to exclude others. His eternal choice of particular sinners unto salvation was not based upon any foreseen act or response on the part of those selected, but was based solely on his good pleasure and sovereign will. Thus, election was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that men would do, 
but resulted entirely from God's self-determined purpose, end of quote. Friends, he was right. That's exactly what Scripture is going to teach, and we're going to really look into that at great length tonight. I think I told you during the course of the doctrines of grace that a night's going to come that we're going to look into Romans chapter 9 at, at great length. Tonight's that night. Tonight's that night. So election means that what happens to an individual's salvation is determined by the prior, catch this, the prior decision of God. Before any of us were ever born, ever created, before the foundation of the world, we were determined by God in eternity past for Him to set His love, His affection, and redeem us. And it's called unconditional election. The one who established the decrees of salvation in Christ before the foundation of the world is what Ephesians 1.4 teaches. Unconditional indicates that this decision was made apart from anything God might foresee in the sinful man. It had nothing to do with that man. His sinfulness, his lack of. It had everything to do with God's decree for every individual. If election was based on anything the sinner might be or do, then ultimately salvation would depend on human merit. But it doesn't. In order to prove that salvation is all of grace, unconditional election is a loving act of God's sovereign choice and will. Now we must realize that unconditional election encompasses the doctrine of predestination. If you recall when we were going through the doctrines of grace, I began with the doctrine of foreknowledge or foreordination, which I like better. And then I said his twin brother was predestination. So we looked at the doctrine of foreknowledge, predestination, and then election. <clears throat> Now, of course, in both those doctrines, including unconditional election, the agent of predestination is who? God himself. No one else. God. You see, from all eternity past, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. God made a choice. And Jesus expressed that choice very clearly. Does anybody remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16, talking to his disciples? Anybody? <clears throat> Without looking. <laughs> Turn to open your Bibles, would you please? John 15, 16. You're going to remember it the minute you get there. It's very ambiguous. John fifteen sixteen. Look what he says. This is our Lord speaking to his apostles. <clears throat> now I'm paraphrasing the beginning. He says, hey guys. Hey, hey boys. He says, you didn't choose me. But I chose you, and notice, and appointed you. You see, God made a choice. <clears throat> and he chose some individuals to be saved unto everlasting life in heaven. 
And he chose to pass over others, allowing them to suffer the consequence of their sin. Eternal punishment in hell. Now the question is, do we find this doctrine taught in Scripture? Well, the answer is yes, we do. Let's jump over and look at something we've been looking at all the way through our study, and we just can't escape it and move away from it. But go to Ephesians chapter 1 again. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the great apostle Paul says this, Just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us or predetermined us to adoptions as son by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now you think that'd be enough. But look at verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predetermined or predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, beloved, you couldn't read that and conclude that you had anything to do with your redemption. There is nothing in that passage that says you had an iota to do with it. Everything points to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> if we were to read on, you'd see in verse 14 that we have a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchase, possession of the praise of His glory. How eternal is it? Extremely. Never to fade away. It's a guarantee. So notice how Paul strongly speaks of election. Let's look at it again. Look how strongly he says in verse 9, he says, God chose us. Not that we chose God. Do you guys see that? God chose us, he says. He doesn't say that we chose God. God chose us in verse 4. What did I say? Oh, my goodness. Why didn't you guys correct me sooner? <clears throat> she did. Appropriate. Yeah, it's appropriate. I need correcting a lot. Don't endorse that. You don't want to walk home tonight, do you? 
God chose us in verse 4, not that we chose God. Then Paul adds in verse 5, look what it says, God predestined us, or God predetermined us. Moreover, the sovereign choice is emphasized by the statement that God chose us in Christ. Look what it says, in Christ before the foundation of the world, verse 4 again. That is, God chose us not because of ourselves and our merits, but because of Christ Jesus. Paul makes that very clear. And that it took place before the foundation of the world, before anything began. That means it took place in God's private counsel, wherever that was, eternity past. It was just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in their counsel, wherever that existed. They purposed to redeem all those in Christ. Friends, we did not even exist to provide any work for God to see. That's what Paul's saying. There was no work to even exist to make us look holy to God. Thus, Ephesians 1 excludes an election that is based on anything found in us. Ephesians 1 excludes an election that is based on anything found in us. Now, this conclusion is further strengthened when Paul adds that this choice and predestination is, look at verse 5. <clears throat> according to the good counsel of God's will, or according to the good pleasure of God's will. You see, God did not choose man because he foresaw anything worthwhile in man, such as faith. That's what Armenians teach, that that man musters up on his own the ability to believe and exercise faith. Therefore, God elects him. And do they also believe Yeah, that Armenians believe that. God does know what man's going to do, though. That's a true statement. God knows everything before it ever happens. But he's not electing men based on what that man's going to do and him knowing what that man's going to do. Once again, if that's the case, God's is now subject to man. May that never be. Our holy, righteous, majestic God ordains what happens. And it's according to his good pleasure and will. But notice something else. Paul omits any reference to man and says that the reason is to be found in God's good pleasure alone. Now, that's magnificent, but I will tell you for a long time I kept saying, Lord, how in the world could you find good pleasure saving sinners? God demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To bring out more forcibly this unconditional election, this sovereign choice of God, which was not based on anything in man, Paul adds the phrase in verse 5, according to God's will. This was not necessary for Paul's reasoning. 
He said the choice was according to God's good pleasure. That statement alone was sufficient to indicate that God's choice was for reasons entirely within him. But when Paul added according to God's will, that indicated more strongly still the freedom of God's choice. And the fact that the reason is to be found in God's will alone, that ends the argument. We shouldn't even debate it. We shouldn't have to discuss it. It's true. Psalm 65, verse 4. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. Unconditional election. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. The you is capitalized. God. Friends, the scriptures represent unconditional election as occurring in time past, irrespective of personal merit and although and altogether by the sovereign act of God, nothing else. I can't point you to anything else. And you yourself can see that all the past references of scripture show that God does not elect people because of something in them that attracts God. Once again, there is nothing attractive to depraved people. It wasn't God saw anything attractive in any of us. You weren't smarter than somebody else. You weren't better looking than somebody else. You were not a lease of a sinner than somebody else. It was all purpose and determined by God and His will. I just quoted it. Here it is in my notes. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrated His own love towards us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In that verse, we see that God's love was not extended towards us because we were good. Quite the contrary. It says His love was extended to us while we were still sinners. In other words, God's love was extended to us despite the fact that we were bad, not good. Now, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture proving God's sovereignty <clears throat> in unconditional election is the irrefutable chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11. We finally have arrived. The Apostle Paul dedicated these three chapters in the book of Romans to clearly illustrate the sovereignty of God in his unconditional election of the elect to salvation. So if you don't mind, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, please. <clears throat> and we're going to dis dissect this passage. <clears throat> Romans chapter 9, verses 4 through 26. Everybody there? The great apostle Paul says in verse 4, Who are the Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, 
the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternal blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared before destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared before glory? Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who were not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Now, friends, the chief argument of Romans chapter 9 through 11 is this. How can the Israelites, who had all the blessings of God in the past, be spiritually lost? Has God forgotten His promise to Israel? Now Paul answers these questions with a firm no. 
Look again with me now as I raise those questions. Look at verse 6. It is not that the word of God has taken no offense, effect. For they are not all Israel who are all Israel. Now without me having to provide an entire exposition on Romans 9, allow me to flush out the important points that Paul has established to prove the sovereignty of God in unconditional election. After Paul answers this rhetorical question we just looked at in Romans 9.6, he goes on in the rest of the chapter to show that salvation does not come because one is a physical descendant of Abraham. Paul has to work against the idea that salvation is passed on biologically through the visible nation of Israel. How many times have you ever heard God has no grandchildren? You ever heard that before? What that means is, that's an old saying that means God doesn't have children that come from mom and dads who are born again believers, and therefore because they're born again, their children are now part of God's family. God does not elect people from families just because they're born again. He does not elect all of the Israelites to be his chosen seed. We're going to see that. Not all Israel is Israel. The salvation that Paul is talking about is given by the sovereign grace of God through, listen to this, unconditional election. The sovereign grace of salvation that Paul is starting to illustrate here comes from unconditional election. Meaning, just because you're a Jew born in Israel doesn't make you a chosen vessel of God. Just because Brian and Lori Wood have Courtney, Callie, and Cameron as our children doesn't mean that they are God's children. God had to do the same thing that he did with Brian and Lori. He had to call Courtney, Callie, and Cameron out of darkness into his marvelous light. They were part of his unconditional elect before the salvation of the world. It had nothing to do with belonging to Brian and Lori's family. Same thing Paul's illustrating here with the Jews. Now the first example given is found in the fact that in Romans 9-7, Paul speaks of the sovereign choice of Isaac over Ishmael. <clears throat> so let's flush that out. Look at 9-7. Paul is saying that nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. He's talking about Isaac getting the blessing. What was the blessing? It was the inheritance. How did that work? In the Middle East culture, the firstborn son receives the blessing or the inheritance of his father. Abraham's firstborn son, anybody know who he was? Ishmael. 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 Where did Ishmael come from? Anybody know? Hagar. Does everybody know the story of Hagar and, and Abraham? God promised Abraham he would give him a son and that his son would be the father of many nations. 
And when Abraham, I don't remember the age. Help me, Jeff. 90? 99? Yeah. Was that what it 99? Okay, 99, and Sarah was then 90? Okay. <clears throat> Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah's wife was 90. Abraham hasn't got a son yet. Abraham forgot God's promise or gave up on God's promise. What happened? Abraham's wife Sarah said, why don't you have a relation with my young maidservant, Hagar? Hagar? Yeah, Hagar. She was the Egyptian uh, maidservant. He had a physical relation with her. She bore him a son, Ishmael. He came before Isaac. In that culture, Ishmael would get the blessing of the father's inheritance. But God says, uh-uh, doesn't work that way with me. God chose his second-born son, Isaac. Isaac came from Sarah. God did the complete opposite of what took place in those days because God's sovereign choice had Isaac called out before the foundation of the world. Paul's making this argument as he's presenting this in Romans to the Jewish people. So in Romans 9-7, Paul speaks of God sovereignly choosing Isaac and disregarding the common practice of the firstborn son receiving the blessing. Look at verse 7. In Isaac, your seed shall be called. Then Paul points to the same sovereign choice God made in the case of Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau had the same parents and were even born at the same time. They were twins. Does everybody know who their father and mother were? Anybody? You guys know. <laughs> Isaac and Rebecca. Okay. So Abraham has Ishmael. Ishmael, the firstborn son, he doesn't get the blessing. God gives the blessing to Isaac. Isaac has two sons. They're twins from his wife, Rebekah. Esau was born first. He was the firstborn son of those twins. Jacob got the blessing. God sovereignly chose Jacob and passed by Esau, the firstborn of the twins. To show that God's choice was not based on foresight, Paul writes that God made his choice known to Rebekah before her two sons were born, before they had done any good or bad. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. This was done, Paul says, to show that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Look at the end of verse 11. Paul is realizing he's writing to his audience. And his audience says, well, I understand why God didn't give Ishmael the blessing because Ishmael was the illegitimate son, so he gave it to Isaac. Paul says, uh-uh, wait a minute. He takes the next step in the argument and says, that's not how it works. It works because God sovereignly chose Isaac before the foundation of the world we know, and he was going to be the son to receive the blessing. But they're saying, yeah, 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 but Ishmael, come on. 
So he says, okay, let's end this argument. He did the same thing with Jacob and Esau. Firstborn son, Esau, should have got the blessing. He didn't. God gave the blessing to Jacob. Loved ones, God did not choose Jacob because he foresaw that he would be good. That's not why it happened. Nor did God choose Jacob because he foresaw that he would believe. That's not how it happened and why it happened. The source of the choice is not found in man, but in God who calls. Verse 11. That the purpose of God according to election might stand. Paul is ending any argument and says, the purpose is God's. And it's according to who he's going to elect. And what he is outlining here is unconditional election. Meaning, again, it has nothing to do with those men. God's doing the electing. Therefore, it's unconditional. Now, to clinch the sovereignty of this choice, to clinch it, God simply states what Paul wrote. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Verse 13. Now Paul feels the sense of dissatisfaction that will undoubtedly arise in the minds of those who read this letter. He senses that some will be very naturally think, how can God be like that? I will say, the first time I saw this 27 plus years ago, I thought the same. Oh, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So people raise the question, that's not fair. Is God fair? He's not fair. Loving one and hating the other even before they were born and therefore before they had a chance to prove themselves? So in the next verse, Verse 14, Paul asks the question, look with me. <clears throat> what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And Paul says, certainly not. Now, I want to say before I go any further, when Paul says in our English, well, in our English language translates from the original, certainly not, it, it doesn't do justice to the original language. The original language would really be absolutely not, may it never be, don't even think of it. It's unheard of. But because they translated it word for word, they said certainly not. May it never be, right? Yeah. Is there unrighteousness with God? Well, friends... That's the rub of it. That's where people have a problem. And they say unconditional election does not take place because they don't like what has happened up to this point. It rubs them wrong. And so man reasons. But do you really want to question the justice of God? Uh -uh. 
God would be justified to pass by all of humanity and not exercise his grace and mercy on anyone. If God gave you and I what we justly deserve, it wouldn't be heaven. Remember, we're totally depraved. Our natural bent is constantly to sin. You see, God chose to exercise His mercy and His grace on us, not His justice. If God were to exercise His justice, no one would be saved. None of us. So for the fact that we are, this is why I go to my knees before God, that He saved me. And He saved you. Out of the sea of humanity, he chose us before the foundation of the world to redeem us unconditionally. Now, before we go on to see Paul's answer to this charge, reflect for a moment that this very question Paul presupposes, the question of verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now follow with me real closely here. <clears throat> the very question Paul asks presupposes unconditional election. The question of injustice in God never, never arises in Arminian theology. Because Armenian theology isn't basing what God does as sovereign, but what man does. Therefore, they never question, is there any, any injustice of God? Why would there be? If God isn't choosing unconditionally, there's no unrighteousness with God. It falls on man, right? Am I making sense? According to the Arminian, God is not arbitrary in his election since he foresees who will exercise good deeds and faith. According to the Arminian, God's choice is based on something that man does or believes. Therefore, his foreordination is entirely fair because it's decided upon the merits of man. They got a problem, don't they? Does everybody understand where I went right there? Does that make sense? It took me 27 years to learn that. I'm going to be truthful. I never recognized that before until I did this study again and presented putting this together, especially this portion. I went, holy cow, I see something I've never seen before. Hey, man, isn't that true? That is so good, Jeff. Yeah, say that again and, 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 and explain it a little bit. That was excellent. Well, you brought out this, this question he asked. He's defending, he's defending the justness of God because in his entire presentation, God is sovereign. Yeah. If man had a part in it, if man were sovereign, 
that question would be would even be in there. You'd be questioning the sovereignty of man for making the right or wrong choice. Right. So, yeah. It's inescapable. So this is what I said next here. You see, to charge the, excuse me, the charge of injustice in God can only arise on the basis of unconditional election. And that's what Paul's teaching. But the minds of the perverted, sinful, depraved man whose reason is tainted by sin is questioning God's unrighteousness. Wouldn't have to question God's unrighteousness if it was conditional election and it was based on man. Nothing to question. To man it seems... Foolish to speak of a good and fair God who simply chooses Jacob and passes by Esau, especially when Jacob is no better nor none deserving than Esau. Let me see if I can remember how this was said, but I think it was R.C. Sproul. <clears throat> I'm not sure if it was when he was in seminary or teaching seminary, but the professor, whoever it was in the seminary, one of the students raised his hand and said, Professor, I am really troubled with God hating Esau. And the professor says, I am too very troubled about it. But I'm even more troubled that he loved Jacob. I thought, wow, that's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. You're right. Because who tried to deceive his father for what? The blessing. The blessing that was already his. That's how depraved he was. That's how tainted by sin he was. He was so corrupted that he tried to deceive his father when the blessing was already his. And by the way, his mother had something to do with it too, didn't she? Mm-hmm. Friends, it's foolishness. Man thinks. It's foolishness. He thinks. And he thinks that God must be unjust. That's what man thinks. He must be unjust. But the very fact that Paul raises the question of unfairness presupposes that he is speaking about unconditional election. It blows an absolute hole in Arminian theology that God's election is conditioned on man. For the Arminian who believes in conditional election, there is no possibility of raising the question of injustice. But Paul does, showing that he is teaching unconditional election. Again, I, I, I never saw that before. I never saw it until the Spirit of God pressed on me, when I'm done with the doctrines of grace, walk the folks through the subject of the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism so that they can see that gulf, that canyon of difference. And while putting this together, I finally saw that for the first time. Did it make sense to you? Okay. Now the answer of the infallible word of God to Paul's question 
is not to retract the sovereignty of God's election or to try to give a rational explanation to doubting men. No, Paul simply states, certainly not. Or you what it was yours, may it never be. May it never be. Do not ever say or think that God is unjust. God is a good God, a holy God, and not unjust for one moment. So Paul goes on to state God's unconditional election in another way by quoting the Old Testament. Look at verse 15, please. In verse 15, Paul's quote in the Old Testament. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, Paul makes it crystal clear that it was not the actions of Jacob and Esau that determined God's sovereign choice of either one of them. No, it was God who, was, who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Paul really cuts right to it right there. Look, he says, it is God who will have mercy on whomever he will have mercy. It is his decision. And later, Paul reiterates that same declaration. Look at verse 18. It says it just a little bit different. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. Beloved, according to the Bible, the choice is entirely upon God. It's entirely up to him. He is free to love whom he wants, and he is free to pass by others. Not because of any good or bad in the man, but for his own good reasons, period. Now at this juncture, it would be possible for us to rest our case. It really would be. To rest our evidence at any one of the numerous points mentioned above in Romans 9. Paul has demonstrated conclusively that salvation is not of man who works, but of God that calls and that his election is unconditional. Therefore, there should be no need to go on. And yet it almost seems as if Paul had the Arminian in mind when he wrote verse 16. I almost struck that from my notes, to be quite honest, my manuscript. But I don't know if he had the Arminians in mind. He might have. (laughs) Look what he says in verse 16. So then, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Paul says unequivocally that there can be no misunderstanding at all. So then, it is not of him who wills. Now notice this little word, it. See that little word, it? Verse 16? So then, it. What do you think it's referring to? I'm looking for one word. Amen. Salvation. Oh, did you hit that? (laughs) Oh, that's good. That was a good answer. Honest man. Friends, nothing could be any clearer. 
Salvation does not depend on the man who wills nor the man who runs, but salvation depends fully, solely, and wholly. When I say holy, I mean W-H-O-L-L-Y, on God. On God who shows mercy. Now, before moving on, one of the reasons the Arminian chooses to make man rather than God the decisive factor in his salvation is that he hopes to save man's freedom. Arminians believe man has a free will. They believe that if God foreordains all things, then man is not free and responsible. So they opt to reduce God's determinative plan and suggest that man acts freely and independent of God. Contrary to what most people think, the Calvinist teaches that man is free also. Free to do exactly what he wants. But just because man is free, man is a slave of sin. His will is bent towards sin. His will is captivated by sin. A drunkard, a compulsive drinker is not free. Technically, he has the eternal choice of drinking or not drinking. External choice, excuse me. But really, there is only one thing he can do, right? He can no more stop drinking than he can stop breathing. He has to drink. Why? Because he's a slave to sin. Good analogy? And yet, he's free. He does exactly what he wants to do. Nobody's compelling him to drink in the same way the non-Christian is free. He does precisely what he wants to do. He follows his heart's desires. And because his heart is rotten and inclined to all kinds of evil, Jeremiah 17, 9, therefore he freely does what he wants to do, namely sin. He hates the triune God and all he stands for. Thus, in reality, he will never choose God. He cannot, for he does not want to. Just because the unregenerate is free, he's a slave to sin. He's a slave to the devil and his evil desires and therefore cannot serve God. Again, the inability of humanity, the total depravity of man. That's why it's so important we started with it when we were really looking at Calvinism. That's why it's got the acronym TULIP, and you always start with total depravity. Once you understand total depravity, all the other doctrines of grace fall right into place. To those who favor a conditional view of election, they face a serious difficulty. They, may, they must assume fallen people are capable of responding positively to the gospel. This assumption presupposes that original sin weakens the will but does not render it unable to incline itself to the things of God. The Arminian thinks that man has a problem that he's sick, he's ill, he's not feeling well. Give him a little medicine and he'll choose God. So that's what I said here. You see, the Arminian believes the will is sick. The Calvinist believes the will is dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 
If the Calvinist view of original sin is correct, then God would see no unregenerate person choose Christ in the future. God would know from all eternity that left to themselves, fallen humanity will never choose Christ. Friends, the Gospel of John records that Christ addressed this very matter we're talking about. So we looked at Ephesians. We looked at Romans. Let's go to John chapter 6 real quick. John chapter 6, verse 64 through 68. Everybody there? But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who did not believe, and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Verse 66. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the words. And what did he say in verse 65? Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him. By who? The Father. Now when it says no one, is that everyone? No one is no one, huh? Once again, the Bible means what it says and says what it means. Jesus says that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. John relates this to the comment that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Again, the reaction to the teaching of Jesus is telling, beloved, telling. Many of his disciples deserted him. But if the words are given in Arminian cast, we see no reason for the offense, right? If we cast the Arminian view, there's no reason to be offended anybody to leave, right? Jesus was casting a Calvinistic view. I've heard men say, and I kind of chuckle at it, it's kind of cute saying, the Apostle Paul was a Calvinist. So was the Lord Jesus Christ. If we understand Jesus' word to teach human inability and an utter dependence on God's grace, the offense becomes understandable, doesn't it? Loved ones, the doctrine of total depravity has offended many. It's offended many. And many have rejected Calvinism precisely because of it. Early in John's Gospel, Jesus says something similar regarding human inability. Here in chapter 6, look at verse 43 and 44. They were murmuring amongst themselves. And Jesus says, Therefore, therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Same thing he said a little bit later. The key statement in this one is draw. 
straw. What is meant by drawing? The word draw comes from the Greek word elko, which literally means to compel by an irresistible superiority. The word draw in its simplest form means to compel. Now to see the force of this verb, we could examine two other passages of the New Testament, this word elko, where it's used. And I already did that, and I'll just remind you, and you might want to just look at it on your own. Acts chapter 16, verse 19, and I told you James 2, 6. When the authorities came and they dragged them into the courts, it's a compelling force. Now, friends, it would be ludicrous to say that Paul and Silas were wooed to the authorities. <laughs> Think about that. Wouldn't that be crazy? <laughs> they were wooed to the authorities. They were drugged. They were compelled. And that's the word that Jesus is using right here. That word draw means compelled. The text clearly indicates that they were compelled to come before the authorities. This is just another argument for the need for unconditional election. Just one more argument to put on our side. Calvinism does not teach that God brings the elect kicking and screaming against their wills into his kingdom, though. I need you to understand that. A man convinced against his own will is not convinced at all. Calvinism teaches that God so works in the heart of the elect as to make them willing and pleased to come to Christ. They come to Christ because they want to. They want to come because God has created in their hearts a desire for Christ. For the non-believer, the unregenerate, God passes over them, leaving them to their own devices. He does not coerce them to sin or create fleshly evil in their hearts like some people say God does. He doesn't do that. He leaves them alone to their own desires. He leaves them to themselves, to their own choices, their own fleshly lusts, and they always choose to reject the gospel. Now it's important to remember that his decree of election that in his decree of election, God considers the mass of humanity in their fallen and sinful condition. Remember that. When God's looking down at the mass of humanity in his decree of election, he's seeing them in their fallen and sinful condition. He chooses to redeem some people from this condition and to leave the rest in that condition. He intervenes in the lives of the elect while he does not intervene in the lives of the lost. One group receives mercy and the other receives justice. Now, it's 10 after. I got a several more verses I could show you real quick. Do you want to do it or if I made it pretty clear? Or do you want me to read them to you? You want to go look at them? Turn over to Psalm 115, please. I always want to be sensitive to time, especially when you come from Samuel's and you have three kids to put to get down. Oh, right on. Gosh. Okay. Well, that be the case. We'll go to uh, we'll go to the next subject.
Limited atonement. <laughs> I'm teasing. I will not do that. Psalm 115, verse 3. You know, to God alone be the glory. Look at verse 3. But our God is in heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. He does whatever He pleases. Look at Psalm 135, verse 6, please. Psalm 135, verse 6. Everybody there? The psalmist says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in the earth, in the seas, and in all deep places. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11, please. Verse 27. Everybody there? In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, our blessed Savior says this, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Did you guys catch that? I held on to that one for a long time. I didn't want to share it until tonight. Look at that one with me again. I just can't get over what Jesus is saying. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Beloved, that's you and I. All of us who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> the Father was revealed to us by the Son. Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. I, I love this question. Everybody there? Matthew chapter 20, verse 15. This is our Lord speaking again. And this is the parable of the laborers. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? I love that. Is it not lawful for me to do whatever I wish with my own things? Can the potter not do what he wants with the lump of clay? The answer is yes. Another new one we haven't looked at. Luke chapter 18, verse 7.
Everybody there? Luke 18, 7. Before we read it, I, I want you to know when I was putting this together, I thought, what more can I say for Scripture? We, we've, I, I thought that we just have flushed everything out. So I said, i got to find some new ones. Are there some new ones? Well, I found out there is. So that's why you're seeing some new ones tonight. So Luke 18, 7, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Sure. Notice what it says. God's elect. His own elect. His own elect. That's you and I. I love being God's elect. Guy, the opposite of that would be to, to be the reprobate. The unregenerate. We just looked at John 15, 16 earlier, didn't we? Yeah. Let's go to Acts 13, 8. You're going to like this one. We looked at it, I think. But it, maybe it'll spur your remembrance. 13, verse 48. The Jews opposing Paul who then turns to the Gentiles. Everybody there? Acts 13, 48. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Unconditional election. They were appointed to eternal life to believe. You couldn't miss that, could you? How about Acts This is, uh, once again, I believe this is Apollos at Ephesus in Corinth. It is. It is said of him that, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through what? Grace. Everybody see that? They believed through grace. Romans 10.20, please. This is Isaiah speaking for God. In Romans 10.20, Paul still defending the sovereignty of God in the unconditional election of the elect. He says in verse 20, but Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest or revealed to those who did not ask for me. Pretty clear, isn't it? They were found by those who did not seek me. 
How, how did they find God? <laughs> he called them. Romans chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. But I'm, I'm going to pick this up in, 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 in verse 1. Paul's asking the rhetorical question to his listeners or his audience, and he says, I say then, has God cast away his people, meaning the Jews? Certainly not, does your say, may it never be? Yeah. Same exact word as we already looked at, may it never be. Very powerful in the original language. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of, Je of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people, whom, look what he says, whom he foreknew. Okay? Drop down to verse 4. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. See that? And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. And he continues on. Let's look at one we, I don't think, have ever looked at. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, but I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. And you'll see why. Everybody there? Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Let's keep going. But of Him you are in Christ Jesus. There it is. But of Him, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Amen. Because it is of him. Two more. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, please. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, the great apostle Paul said this, For to you, the believer, 
it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You understand what it says? It has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him. You were granted the opportunity to believe. You didn't muster up that on your own. It's a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And Paul is saying the same thing. For, it, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only believe in him, but also to suffer. One more, James chapter 2, verse 5, please. Everybody there? James chapter 2, verse 5. The great apostle says this, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? The answer is yes. Absolutely. Loved ones, the doctrine of unconditional election, it's but a part of a much broader biblical doctrine. And that biblical doctrine is God's absolute sovereignty. Notice the word I use, God's absolute sovereignty. You see, the Lord God rules over heaven and earth with absolute control, with absolute sovereignty. And nothing comes to pass apart from his eternal purpose. Nothing. Unconditional election. Would you close us in prayer? Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.